Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast, a convenient place where you can stay up to date on what's popular in the swine industry. By listening to Popular Pig, you will receive invaluable information on the latest trends, news, and research from various experts that guide the global pork industry. Popular Pig is brought to you by sponsors like Johnsonville Foods, SwineWeb.com, Innovative Heating, the manufacturers of Hog Hearth, and SwineTech, the award-winning creator of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how you can reduce piglet crushing and your overall pre-winning mortalities by nearly 25%, visit SwineTechnologies.com. Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast. My name is Matthew Rota, your host for today's episode. Today, we're joined by the man who started it all, Mr. Wendell Murphy. Hi, Wendell. How are you doing today? I'm, I'm wonderful, but that was a little bit of an overstatement. <laughs> you, you did do a lot of stuff for the pork industry and getting us to where we are today, and, and, and we are excited to talk with you about that. Uh, more than anything, I just, what have you been up to? What are you up to that, uh, throughout all this quarantine? Well, uh, that's what I, that's what we're mostly doing. My wife refuses to leave the house, and I'm not used to grocery shopping or any other kind of shopping, but I'm having to do that now, and I, and my inexperience shows every time I go to the market. <laughs> Been learning to cook, too, or you, you do much cooking? No, 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 no. <laughs> we, we, we have restaurants. Oh, so those are all up and up and, and moving forward now? Yeah, they're, they're, they're open at uh, approximately half capacity. I think, uh, I think a part of my heart died when I found out that, uh, that um, Howard's restaurant, the, not the chef and the farmer, but the other one in Kinston went out of business or she shut it down because she, she sure does. Vivian Howard, she makes some really good food over there. Well, she's an extraordinary person, uh, not only a chef, but what a, what a lady she is. And, uh, yeah, but the, uh, the truth is going to be that there's going to be a lot of more restaurants that, that don't get started back uh, after all the people. People are creatures of habit. And so we, we were used to going to the restaurant several times a week for dinner. Now we're used to staying at home. And so they just, I don't feel the inclination or the urge to, to go back like I used to. And I think that's kind of the way it is with a lot of people. Yeah, I definitely agree there. It's just, a, it's fascinating to see how everything has changed. And uh, I guess speaking of change, that's a big topic for today, talking about the change within the industry. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to start with just talking about your early beginnings. What were you doing before you got into the pig business? And uh, how did you get started into the pig business? Well, uh, first of all, I, I grew up on a small tobacco farm here in Duplin County in North Carolina. Uh, and uh, that was our that was our meal ticket, so to speak. That's what we made a living doing. But we traditionally had a few pigs. And when I'm a child, one of my chores when I was real young was to feed the pigs uh, during late afternoon. And uh, after I finished uh, high school, I went off to North Carolina State University to study agriculture. And uh, knowing that I wanted my career to be agriculturally and uh, but not knowing exactly what I was going to do because daddy had forewarned me there was 
that tobacco farm was not a big was not large enough for two families so i knew going back to the home farm was not a possibility so when i graduated um, i had two or three job offers one of the one of the better job offers was with one of the tobacco companies uh, but they wanted me to go to brazil and gosh i didn't want to leave duplin county much less going to another foreign country like that so I took a job teaching vocational agriculture in a nearby uh, high school. And uh, knowing that teaching is not what I wanted to do in, in for my career, but it was at least a place to get started. And so um, on this particular um, Thanksgiving day in 1961, a fellow teacher and friend of mine uh, and I had been somewhere, I don't recall exactly where, but we came back through the town of Warsaw, North Carolina, which is about 15 miles from where we are now. And uh, we passed this little custom feed mix, uh, grind and mix feed mill, uh, which, and there were several scattered throughout Eastern North Carolina at that time. But uh, Billy Register, my friend, fellow teacher says, said, you know what, I think one of those would go good. And he was pointing toward uh, that custom grind feed mill. And it was like a light bulb went off in my head. That's exactly what I wanted to do. And since he had confidence to believe one would work in our rural community, they weren't in towns, they were scattered through the rural countryside. And boy, I couldn't wait to get home to get my start doing my thinking. I wanted to get hurry up and get it going because I was afraid he might be going to do one. And they certainly didn't need two right in the same community. But uh, it took me several months to convince my daddy to co-sign a $10,000 note. Uh, that would be like 100000 or more now. But uh, I, had done, I had done my research and found that to get started at the very minimum was going to take $13,000. Well, my wife and I, she was, she was working in the office work and I was teaching agriculture. Between the two of us during that period of time, we had saved 3000 so uh, we needed ten. And of course, my, my daddy was a teenager during the Great Depression, and he saw so many farmers and, and others lose their business and, 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 and all their savings and everything else. So borrowing money was never in his repertoire as, uh, of doing business. And when, when, I was, uh, when I was growing up, if daddy didn't have the money to pay for it, we didn't get it. If it was a pair of shoes that were worn out, we might have to put some cardboard in the in the bottom until to keep wearing them until he had the cash to pay because borrowing was not in his vocabulary. So we were the school I was teaching at was close enough that I could drive over to his house and mother's for dinner uh, anytime I wanted to. So I started going more regularly, pitching my sales pitch to him that I needed him to co-sign a $10,000 note for me. And of course the answer was no, it was foolish. You just makes no sense. And <clears throat> I kept on, I started going more frequently during the week. <laughs> 
And I think finally, <clears throat> pardon me, <clears throat> I think finally <clears throat> he decided the only way that he was going to get rid of me uh, was to agree to help me. And he did it with this caveat. Okay, you're, you're, you, you keep on teaching, doing your job, and you will make the payments on that note out of your, your salary so that no money will have to come from the business to be applied to repay the note. And uh, I'm, I'm sure that I had proven to him that that would work because I explained to him that, uh, that he would never have to repay that note. I said, the only risk you're taking is if, uh, if, if I become disabled. I said, if I die, I've got life insurance. And if I continue to live and work, I can work it out if the business fails. Dad was a hard-working man. He believed in work, and he, he was he had an extraordinary uh, reputation for honesty and integrity, and, and I inherited that, and that, I think, was so important. But he agreed that he would be at the mill during the day. I would teach school, then I could come home after, the, after my day at work and on Saturdays and Sundays, whatever time that I needed to be there. And you wouldn't believe it, how successful we were from the very first day. It was incredible. It was even far better than anything I could have even thought it might be. One of the ideas that I had included in my plans for building this little mill was, uh, oh, well, let, let me go back and tell you that back then the corn was harvested from the field with a, what we call a picker. It came in the shuck, in the husk, uh, unshelled. And so we had the corn sheller to shell the corn, and we arranged to blow the cobby shuck mill into the hammer mill so we could grind it and salvage it. Other feed mills in the county had, one. I know of at least one mill that spent more building an incinerator to burn that stuff than I did on the whole mill. The, uh, the arithmetic was that we could shell 100 bushels of corn per hour, small, I told you it was small, and 100 bushels of corn, we, whatever we paid for it, we sold it to one of the local poultry mills here in town for 10 cents a bushel more. And the, uh, 100 bushels of corn would yield 2,000 pounds or a ton of the cob and shuck meal. Well, I didn't have any idea we could be able to sell all of it, but I thought we could sell some of it maybe adding it back to cattle feed uh, for our local farmers. Turns out there was a demand for the cob and shuck meal. We didn't, we never had to, uh, we never wasted any of it. All we could get, here we are, selling the cob and shuck meal. And arithmetic was something like this, 10 cents a bushel on 100 bushels an hour, that's going to yield you $100 for the shelter. Now, the cobby shuck meal, we're getting $20 a ton, so, so that's an additional an additional uh, $200 a day. So instead of $100 a day growth, we were grossing 300 And that was going really, really well. And two years later, the first combine showed up in the community. And the next year, there were two or three more. So the handwriting was on the wall. It soon was going to be we wouldn't have any more cob and shuck meal to, to, uh, to grind. 
So we started buying feeder pigs from the local livestock market, put them out on the, in dirt lots very inexpensively, and uh, turned out that uh, that uh, we were making more on the pigs that we were feeding of our own than we were on the feed that we were selling to customers. And so as time went along, we were uh, we were uh, adding more and more pigs, and finally we got to where the capacity of the mill uh, was being exceeded, and so we had to discontinue uh, doing custom work for our neighboring farmers. And so it's just it's like a snowball; it just kept growing and growing, and we were it was we were we were making money, and uh, it, it's just been it was just a, an amazing start and one that I'm I'm so happy and proud of what what we were doing. And I can tell you, we worked hard. Hard work was never something that anybody in, in the Murphy family dreaded. In fact, we enjoyed it. And so we just we just kind of made it work, and then we could see that uh, as time went along that there were efficiencies in confinement facilities rather than the outdoor lots. And so uh, I believe our first finishing indoor finishing buildings uh, happened in 1979, 1979. and our first sales that year. Uh, and uh, we kept on buying pigs, though, from everywhere, all corners of the United States, practically, certainly from the Midwest, throughout the Southeast, uh, Virginia, South Carolina, Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, uh, even Missouri. And we, in one time we were bringing pigs, believe it or not, from Iowa to North Carolina. And uh, but so we had reached a point where... Uh, we couldn't get, there was just not enough pigs. We couldn't continue to grow because the, the, the supply had been exhausted. And so we realized if we were going to grow further, we had to add, add uh, our sales. So we started that in 1979. And, and it just kind of exploded and grew. And it grew until 2000. And that's the year that we merged our business with Smithfield. So how many sales did you end up starting with? The first herd was uh, 500. And, and then what, what? I was just going to say, we, after our first herd, then we uh, started offering contracts. And we thought that the ideal size herd for a contract grower, uh, for a man and his wife and maybe one or two of his children, that they could uh, take care of 200 sows without having to have outside outside the family labor and so uh that worked pretty good until we started realizing well listen this family doesn't have a day off anytime they are seven days a week and the whole family is just tied to lock down so we said well let's go to 300 sows with, with additional herds and sure enough in, in production improved our efficiency improved and so then we thought about that, and I said, "What if we uh, go to five hundred sales now? Now, now that family labor has they're having to hire labor when they get to that size. Every time we expanded the size of the herd, efficiencies improved, and 
we got it up to a thousand and twelve hundred and all of a sudden randy stacker who i believe you know and probably the best hog person in the world uh said wendell said let's try 3600 well he hadn't been wrong before so i didn't say no to that and got to 3600 and then uh, it just it was crazy it was just we, we, we were raising so many pigs it, it was mind-blowing <laughs> so when i guess you you brought up randy there and I, i'd like to touch on this area and timing before you guys really really grew who did you bring on to your team during well, that time well let's go back um to the to long before we had the confinement facilities, the first management level employee we ever hired was a man named Jim Stocker. He was working with uh, Central Soil Company at that time, and and we were dealing with Central Soil in a pretty big way. And he was their credit manager and was responsible for our account. So I had gotten to know him really well because we worked really closely together. I saw him frequently, saw him often. And uh, we had, at that time, we had 27 people working for us, and uh, they were all laborers. They were not no management uh, involved in, in those individuals. So when Jim came on, that was a, a big relief. So he was our very first one. And then... Uh, I may have trouble remembering there's so many of them as, we, as time has gone along, but uh, Randy was, he was, uh, his, 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 his ability with the hog industry supersede anybody I'd ever seen. And you, you went up to Indiana, right? To tour or work with, to kind of see what he was doing up there before, before you brought him on. I, you know what? My memory is faded now, uh, but, uh, I can't remember how exactly that we got to know Randy. Uh, I forgot the name of the company he was working for. Do you remember they were in Indiana, uh, and they were very prominent, uh, well-known in a lot of areas. Um, anyway, uh, I knew him over the years, and as soon as I felt comfortable, I started trying to hire him. And... Uh, he, 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 I think he liked me a lot, but he wasn't really sure that we were had the wherewithal to do what he thought we needed to do. So he, he left Jaeger and Sullivan. That was the name of the feed business in Indiana that he worked for. Um, he, he left Jaeger and Sullivan and went to work for PIC. And we were doing business with PIC, so we got to know each other even better and better then. And so finally, I, I guess I must have just made him an offer he couldn't refuse. <laughs> anyway, he came to work for us, and that was a that was a big that was a big deal. So when we when we look at building teams and growing growing any kind of business, but specifically in the swine industry, your team is so important. You you as a as a leader within your organization and as a business owner, how did you choose team members? What what were the qualities or characteristics that you looked for? You know, I've uh, I've said many times in the past that um, I think my God-given strength probably was in evaluating people to have an understanding of what their mindset was and what they could do 
and how they could help us. And, uh, and I, I think in, in hindsight, that's what I did better than anything else is uh, make sure I had people that, around me that were smarter than I was and that wanted to work and had the same goals that I had in mind. And by the way, I never set a goal that says we're going to uh, reach uh, 10,000 sales or 100,000 sales or any other number. What we did was we, as we made profits, we just grew the business with a profit. And so, and so that's how fast we grew is how fast we could afford to grow. And uh, that's, that's something that, that, that was always on our mind because I think my daddy instilled a, a lot in me about debt. So uh, I wasn't ever really afraid of debt as long as we were making money. And, uh, and fortunately for us, uh, we, 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 did, we did well. I, I, I'm not bragging. I'm just saying that I'm proud of the group people we put together. And, they, and you know what? They were proud of it, too. They were proud of it too. So what would you say your, your leadership style was then through, through this time of growth? And Well, unfortunately, I think I was too much of a hands-on person. In hindsight, I probably should have turned them loose a little bit more. But uh, I think I've said, I may have said this earlier in, in this meeting, that, that I've never had very many real good original ideas but i think i've been pretty good at recognizing when somebody else had good ideas so we could use their ideas and we've done a lot of that so you you you, you mentioned that in uh now and in a, in a prior call and i'm curious what what did you do or did your team do to empower yourselves and your employees to think differently because you did transform the way we looked at this industry, and I want to dive into that in a bit. But were there any any core core things that you guys did as a company to try to encourage others to think different? Well, one of the one of the real blessings that we had was the fact that uh, people like Carol's Foods, Prestige Farms, Goldsboro Mill and Company, who in who in some states and some places would have they would have been felt like they were in competition with each other. We never, we never felt like we were in competition with each other. We worked together to help. Help. If we could do something to help the other guys, we would. If we could, they could help us. They would. And I think that cooperation right there was a big, a big thing. In fact, we came up with the idea of ag provision. I don't know if you've ever heard of it or not, but that yeah. was a co-op purchasing co-op that we put together. To, uh, to, to, to give us purchasing power when we had all, all four of the companies to combine. Uh, the volume that we were, were purchasing collectively put us in a, a stronger position to bargain. So you would say then collaboration in itself is probably the, the greatest mindset needed to innovate. Yeah, yeah, there was a lot of the vendors when we first started Ag Provision didn't want to do business with us because they didn't think that they didn't think that this was going to work at all. It, it just blew their minds when the, to think that the four of us, instead of trying to compete against each other, we were working together. And so early on, some of the vendors refused to do business with us, but it didn't take them long to see that they were getting left out. 
I, I can't imagine. Yeah, I can't imagine them sitting on the sidelines for too long. <laughs> Not too long. So to kind of hop back into the the story of of transforming this industry, uh, one thing that you guys did was you reimagined the South Farm uh, by splitting it up and, and taking a different approach. Can can you talk about what was that like? Maybe what was it like doing that on the first South Farm, and and how big was it, and and, and why did you do it? It's kind of well, dire- early, well, you know, early on we had what we call three site production. Uh, farrowing, uh, breeding and farrowing in one facility. And at three, approximately three weeks, we moved the pigs to what we call the nursery and get them up to 50 pounds or so. Then they were moved to the finisher. Um, we thought that three-site production would, uh, would help us control disease, and I think it did. Um, we, uh, it, it was, there was some extra moving uh, with the, with the animals, and there was that some expense. But I do believe that we were better able to to manage diseases with the three site production. And that was unheard of at the time, right? Like everything was all done on one site prior to that. Gen- generally speaking, that is true. But the way, but with the volume that we had, we could move the pigs. Uh, we could we could fill a finishing barn all at one time. And then take them all out before we put more in by having that volume. The, the, generally, the ferret finish producers had uh, finishing houses that had all ages and size of pigs in them. Ours were consistent so that we filled the barn in one day and emptied it over about three weeks. And then shortly after you had proven that to work you guys had decided to build a 3600 head south farm but not just one three of them right like that was uh that next big jump um again my memory has faded a little bit but yeah once we started with the 3600s uh and they were working and we were like i said we were not borrowing money to build them with we had we were were making enough profit and we were putting all the profit back into 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 the new and new uh, facilities and we eventually got the sow numbers on farms up to 11,000. Uh, they were, they, those units are in Oklahoma. Uh, but every time they made them bigger, seemed like they more efficient. And uh, being able to fill and empty finishing barns before replacing, I think, was a big thing. What were what were things like then, um, rounding out the '90s uh, before you sold to Smithfield? What where, where was the business at that time? What were some of the challenges you were facing? And uh, would you mind talking about about that? Well, we we, we were. I think that one of the things we were growing so fast during the '90s that uh, I think we lost some of our efficiency in construction. It's all of a sudden, I look and was costing more to build facilities that we were not didn't have quite the supervision over that that we had before and uh there was was more waste left over left over building materials and wasted materials and that was so disappointing because i have always been attentive to details every one of them don't waste anything and we did a good job of that but we kind of lost lost track of that uh, during the 90s when we were really growing so fast. 
probably not too hard to do when you have a couple hundred thousand sales and all these finishers going up. It, it, it's a lot to manage. Yeah, it, it was, uh, uh, I think, I think the numbers finally got up. I don't know that my memory has faded, but I think we finally got it up to about a half a million. It's incredible. It's incredible how fast that all came together. When, when, when we look at the things going on today, there's, there's just a, a lot of challenges facing the modern pork producer um, in, in many different directions. When you think about everything that you were able to accomplish and, and the, the mindset of collaboration and, and, and the teamwork and leadership styles, what, what golden nugget, if you could just find one, what golden nugget would you share with producers today to inspire them during these times? Um, since I've been out of the business now for 20 years, it's hard for me to, to offer much advice uh, to these you producers. But there's one thing that I do believe that we all must embrace and I mean all industries for that matter, not just the pork industry, but change. Change is going to happen. We are not going to be able to keep doing things just tomorrow like we did them yesterday and so on down the line. So to resist change is mean you're going to be left behind. I believe that to be true. Yeah, Dr. Lyons, uh, Dr. Pierce Lyons had the, the quote and the phrase, change is the only constant. And uh, I think we're seeing that, and, and especially with technology entering our lives in a big way, it, it really is the only constant. There's always something new going on. Yeah, it, it really is. It was back then, and it, and, and it is now, and it will be 100 years from now. Well, I, I really appreciate you today taking the time to sit down, share your story, share some advice and some wisdom. And uh, I really appreciate it. And uh, I'm sure everybody listening does as well. Well, I enjoyed it. And uh, I wish you well in, in your endeavors. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Popular Pig. We aspire to learn and grow together through the experience and wisdom shared by our esteemed guests. Therefore, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues within the swine industry. For more information, please go to popularpig.com and subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are available. Today's episode is brought to you by sponsors like SwineTech. Leverage the power of computer vision, voice recognition, and real-time behavioral monitoring to reduce mortalities and labor inefficiencies in the farrowing house. For more information, visit swinetechnologies.com.